Our sermon text today is found in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. You can open your Bibles there with me as we begin this sermon entitled, Mysteries. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. Well, the verdict is in. We love a good mystery. The world of entertainment sure hasn't missed the memo, have they? I mean, it seems like every TV creator and docu-series writer is racing to feature the next fictional sleuth or true crime saga. And if you're like me, you're here for it, tuning in every step of the way. You see, after comedy and news, true crime are the podcasts that America is listening to most. Right behind Checkers and Monopoly and Scrabble, Clue is the highest selling board game in all of history. And of all the literary genres of fiction books, it's the mystery, thriller, crime books that rule the U.S. today. Even more than a good romance novel, people reach for a mystery thriller. In fact, we have a whole section for that, a word for it. We made up a word to call these kinds of books. Maybe you know it. It's actually a lazy way to combine four different words because that would be too hard to say, so we need to make it just one. They're called a whodunit. W-H-O-D-U-N-I-T. Because that makes sense. Whodunit. It's a whole collection of stories and books. Detective novels. And the coinage first comes in the 1930s when one newspaper writer, reviewer, had to summarize a pretty unremarkable mystery novel, and he said it was a satisfactory whodunit. It caught on. Some tried to call it a whodidit, but that didn't make the cut, guys. Whodunit won the day. In fact, it was used so much that by 1939, one language pundit had declared it was already an overworked term. It would soon be dumped into the taboo bin, if only. But history has proven that prophecy false. The whodunit is still going strong. Nearly a century later, a good mystery still grabs our attention. Mystery is the word that appears again and again in our text today. Maybe you noticed it because we still love a good mystery. Did you hear it? Ephesians 3 verses 1 through 5 For this reason, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, for the sake of the Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote to you before, he says. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of man, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Mysterion is the word he uses. It appears 21 times in Paul's letters, and six of those are here in Ephesians. But this is not mystery like you know mystery. It has some of the characteristics of a a classic crime thriller. In fact, in a minute, we're going to see how this mystery has an inheritance hanging in the balance. 
We'll discover there's a, a body found along the way, even clues that will lead us to a promise. But mystery for Paul is not the modern crime drama. In fact, all of the verses in Ephesians and Colossians that refer to mystery also indicate that it's now revealed or known or understood or, or spoken out or proclaimed. In every case, it's something that's already been disclosed to us. Now, modern usage of mystery refers to what is unknown, but in, in Jewish and in early Christian literature, the word really refers to a hidden divine plan that's now been revealed. John Stott describes it this way, that we need to realize that the English and Greek words don't have the same meaning. In English, a mystery is something dark and obscure, puzzling and secret. What is mysterious is, is often inexplicable or even incomprehensible. But the Christian mysteries, although still a secret, are no longer closely guarded but open. The Christian mysteries and truths, which although they're beyond human discovery, have been revealed by God and so now belong openly to the church. In this circular letter, as it makes its way along to churches in Asia, Paul writes in this Gentile region, teaching them and enriching their faith. In Ephesians 2, he's already talked about the great riches we have in Jesus, the, the grace that's been brought to us who were once dead but have now been made alive. And he continues in chapter 3, and he interrupts his train of thought to begin a prayer, but that doesn't last long either. He interrupts his prayer to tell you this, that a mystery has been brought to you, has been made known through him. He calls himself in verse 2 a steward of God's grace. In verse 9, he calls himself a, a part of the administration of mystery. I was forwarded an email recently from a family member who works for a, a large firm. The information had been sent to him from a coworker. I noticed her email signature at the bottom of the email he forwarded to me had her name and below her job title. She was the knowledge manager. That's a new one to me. I wasn't sure if it was a really prestigious title at the firm. I mean, I like knowledge. Who doesn't want to manage the knowledge? Or maybe it was one of those made up terms, you know, to give hype to a job that's really not all that luxurious. Maybe they let her pick her own title. That's going around these days, you know. I came across another of these job titles recently, a woman working for a Massachusetts tech company whose job title was Crayon Evangelist. You heard it right. She's something of a graphic design manager who made up her own title, Crayon Evangelist. Visual impact, she said. My job is to spread the gospel of great design. I energize the company around building a single, powerful corporate image. When Paul has his own title, he wants you to know about it. Surely you have heard, Paul says, I am a steward, a manager of a mystery of all mysteries. My job is to, to manage the new knowledge. I'm here to energize this body around a, a single image. You see, the mysterion that Paul writes about is not some unsolvable crime or event. 
an event beyond our comprehension or explanation. No, something that was once veiled has been unveiled. Something that was previously hidden has been revealed. It's not that the Old Testament didn't know it. It's that they hadn't figured it out yet. It was a a foundation only. They saw only dimly. As the early church theologian Theodorette says, they did not see the whole picture, but wrote down words about aspects of it. St. Augustine said, in the old, the new is concealed, but in the new, the old is revealed. And Paul says, God has revealed a mystery, not just any mystery, but the greatest mystery of all time. No one has really understood this mystery before. It's been hidden throughout the ages. Generations have been searching for these answers. And those who will look and listen to what Paul has been given will come to know this great mystery. And it is all wrapped up and revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In verse 4, Paul assures the readers that if they will hear him out, if they will read this letter, as they no doubt did in their public worship all throughout Asia Minor, they will come to know the insight that Paul has been gifted about this mystery of Christ. It's not that Paul is so smart that he's figured it out. He's not a a super sleuth who's detected something no one else knows. He doesn't have a, a special code to unlock things. No, in undeserved grace, God has commissioned Paul for a role in his divine plan. And as this plan unfolds and as it's unveiled today, we discover that we too have a task, a role to play in God's unveiled mystery. Make no mistake, the plan that Paul talks about belongs to God. God is the sole owner of this plan, but like a manager who oversees the tasks in a house, God has appointed Paul to carry it out. And Paul adds, this is for all of you Gentiles. This is for all of you. He's received God's grace so that he might bring the message of salvation to the nations. He is to be a steward of God's grace. And that means unpacking a mystery for everyone. And so in verse 6, we learn the content of this mystery revealed by God. What is it? He tells us, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. He tells them first that as a result of this mystery, there is an inheritance. An inheritance. They are fellow heirs, or your translation might say, heirs together with one another. He's describing distinctly different people with the language of a joint inheritance. He envisions these two groups now standing on equal footing and getting the same reward. As he says in Romans, we are, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, which is remarkable, exciting, and wonderful news to every Gentile believer who would hear and read this letter in the first century. Imagine if you were a Jewish reader 
or hearer of Paul's gospel. It's like that reckless brother has come home from squandering his inheritance and the father welcomes him back into the family, but you know that means your inheritance is getting split in half the next time around. Except that God's grace isn't a zero-sum game. And more grace for someone else doesn't mean less grace for you. And yet we live like that sometimes, don't we? Does that bother you, the the text asks us? That all people will have the same inheritance equally? And why would we ever treat God's endless grace as if there isn't enough to go around, as if someone's extra grace means less for me, but that's what it would have felt like if those the Jews called dogs are suddenly now have a seat at the table. But they're fellow heirs now, Paul says. Heirs with you. And second, he says, there's a body involved. You see, you're fellow members of the body, members together. Literally, you are co-bodied with all those who believe in Jesus. You see, prior to this, this word isn't even found anywhere else. Some even suggest that Paul makes up this word to describe this entirely unique situation that has been created in Jesus. It means belonging to the same body. What is it about or in Christ that was formerly hidden and is now discovered through Paul? It's that in Christ, God has united Jews and Gentiles, the Hebrew people of the Old Testament who already had covenants and promises and laws and inheritance with these outsiders. And who could have come to the conclusion by the Old Testament or or even surveying the history of God's people that this would happen? Who could have surmised that God would create a whole new body based not on the covenants of the law of Israel, but by allegiance to his crucified and risen son, Jesus? Now, maybe this is old hat to you. Maybe these are familiar terms. Maybe you've heard the words, the body of Christ so long that it no longer rings as something new to you. But this gospel which Paul proclaims is radical because he's saying that all people once divided when believing in Jesus become one. And unless it's true in all the world today, this ought to be shocking news to us now. And not just an inheritance, not just a body, but a promise is involved. Fellow partakers, he says, Sharers together in the promises of old. What was once promised only to Israel, to the, only to the descendants of Abraham, has now been promised to all the world. Salvation has come in Jesus to Jew and Gentile alike. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. And all come needing the same grace, providing the same faith alone. The language speaks of those who who have a share together in some possession or a relationship. And Paul says, Gentiles share with the Jews in this promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Again, we've heard this so much that maybe it doesn't startle us. I can tell you this, it startled the Jewish world of Paul's day. Popular Jewish teaching about Israel's history and heritage excluded Gentiles entirely. They were dogs to them. And Gentiles considered Jews to be stubborn and and hateful. Two groups that seemed unreconcilable are no match 
for the reconciling power of God. Our English translations offer the same adjective you might notice in your Bible for these words. Each of them is really just one word in the Greek. All of them start with the same little preposition, making a a nice alliteration for effect. Paul has intentionally chosen together words. That's why yours says a fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers, or in the NIV, heirs together, members together, sharers together. Do you get the common element here? All three stress equivalence, equal footing, identical status before God. Here's the result of the mystery of the gospel, Paul says. All believers in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, share equal benefits as members of a new body. Every other privilege and division or boundary that once divided or separated you is gone if by faith you come to Jesus. These are new teachings, Paul says, that he's been commissioned to proclaim to all the world, but not for no reason, but for a purpose. You see, God's grace to us is the greatest gift we could ever receive. But it is both a gift and a task. See, God's people exist as one corporate body, the body of Christ, who possess unity and equality. And in this new, one, reconciled people, the church, God has a plan. And that when you come to faith in Jesus, you become a part of this body. You are pulled up into his divine plan for all the world. Paul says in verses 8 through 10, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I realize that in a world where nearly one third of the population professes to be Christians, it might not be striking to you that this group could have an influence on the cosmic realities of the world. But consider the conviction required to preach this message in Ephesus and the other churches around first century Asia. At the time that this vision is taking root, the church would hardly have measured a blip on the radar. A demographic study wouldn't have even found anyone to speak of. And yet Ephesians sees the church at the center of what God is doing in the world. Is your salvation at the center of what you're doing in the world? They dared to believe that their little assembly of faith in Jesus could have not just personal implications, not just social impact, but could make God's manifold wisdom known to every power here and above in heaven and on earth. It was a mystery unfolded on a cosmic scale to be made known by a fringe movement out of a fringe ethnic group in first century Asia. 
They dared to believe that their existence was God's plan for the world. Even more, they were able to imagine that it was revealing God's plan to other people and to forces that control the universe. The 1920s and 1930s are are widely considered the golden age of detective fiction. It was the era of classic murder mystery novels. Most of them had similar patterns and style. The authors uh, used the same kinds of schemes and characters, sometimes even using the same settings, you know, a cast of of upper-class folks who were in a secluded English country house. Most of the authors were British. And in that golden age of mysteries, Ronald Knox codified what a true detective story really ought to be. He said it must have as its main interest the unraveling of a mystery, a mystery whose elements are clearly presented to the reader at an early stage in the proceedings and whose nature is such as to arouse curiosity. And that curiosity, he writes, ought to be gratified or satisfied at the very end. You see, the whole genre was built on the idea that a story can can capture your attention, that a good mystery can can take hold of your curiosity and and hold on to it for a moment until at the end the the perpetrator is revealed or the, the clue is unlocked, the mystery is uncovered, and you, having resolved it all, can go on your way, the world back in neat order. And for too many The mystery of the church has been exactly that. A momentary curiosity, a fleeting interest where where your imagination is taken hold of for a moment and maybe let go, a story that, that meets resolution in Jesus and ends there. But conversion, salvation, the gift of grace to you is not a beginning, excuse me, is not an ending, but a beginning. It ought to take hold of you God's grace to us is a gift of salvation, but it is also a task that we're drawn into. And that's why Paul says he's been commissioned to proclaim the unfathomable riches of Christ, to turn the lights on on the mystery so that every ruler and power and this whole world can be drawn to it, captivated by it. But that's not just Paul's purpose. It's not even just your purpose. This is about our role in God's eternal purposes that Paul says he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Longtime missionary and theologian Leslie Newbegin writes in his book, The Open Secret, that the church lives in the midst of history as a sign and an instrument and a foretaste of the reign of God. The kingdom of God is a a secret that's now open as God reveals himself through the church he has sent into the world. You see, the community that confesses Christ as Lord has been from the beginning a movement that was launched into the public life of all the world. And there were several commonly used words in Greek society for groups like this. There were lots of folks who, who offered to bring you personal salvation through religious teaching and practice. There were others who suggested that you could come and be a part of a group that would enlighten you or enrich your life. And at no time did the church use any of those names for itself. 
It was not and could not be a society just offering personal enrichment or who cared for themselves. From the beginning, the church chose to use a little word called ecclesia, an assembly of citizens that were dealing with public affairs, except this isn't just the town clerk. It was the ecclesia theo, the assembly called by God. And because of that, the Roman Empire couldn't have it. You see, they could have escaped persecution if they'd been content just to call themselves another private religion or another cult among other cults, but they refused to do so. The affirmation that Jesus is Lord bound them into a body, forced them to call themselves an assembly called by God. The Christian mission was to act in their whole life together that the confession that Jesus is Lord. You see, the church is the place where the mystery of the kingdom of God, which we have come to know through the dying and rising of Jesus, is made present here on the earth. The mystery that Paul has a a special view into that he wants to make known to you is that your grace and salvation is not only a gift of God, but a task in his church. That we are the place where the mystery is made known so that all people, whether righteous or unrighteous, can have an equal seat at the table. That all are enabled to take and share the love of God. That people burdened by sin can come to salvation because you announce and proclaim that Jesus is Lord by what you say and how you live. We are the place, we are the place where the glory of God actually abides among us so that the love of God is available to the world. I believe that the reign of God is present in the midst of sinful, weak, divided people not by any power or goodness of our own, but because God has called and chosen his people to bear this gift to the world. Paul calls himself the least of the apostles, or literally the the leastest of all the apostles. And if you feel weak and incapable today of this role, so did Paul, but God's grace is greater still. And he calls you in all of your weakness and imperfection to come and to be a part of the only movement that ever mattered, the only cause that ever lasts, the only power that can truly save. His name is Jesus and his body is here before you today and gathers all around the world in worship of the one true and living God. Does your world seem fractured by inequality lately? The church is the community that proves and proclaims that we are equally heirs together in Christ. Does division seem to run rampant in your day? The church is the body that shows the world the only power capable of holding us together. Is there confusion today about what's right and wrong or up and down? The church is the new humanity that makes God's wisdom known to a wisdomless people. We are the place where the promise of Jesus is fulfilled that when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. We are the place where the reign of God is present as the love of God is shared amidst unlovely and unlovable folks. 
If you're looking today at the problems of the world and wondering where to aim your creative energy to do something, I'm telling you the answer is here. It is in Jesus and it is in the called and equipped community whose allegiance is to him and to him alone. Above any other cause or passion you could have. The problem with mysteries is that once we figure them out, they're yesterday's news. A detective novel is only compelling while the solution remains unknown. I'm only captivated by a mystery movie if I don't know how it will turn out. Once a case is solved, it has a place in the newspaper for a few days, and then the story fades as other issues dominate the front page. But for the sake of the world, the mystery of the gospel has to be the complete opposite. See, for Paul, the pattern is reversed. And what I'm saying today is that maybe we fall into the trap of letting other things be front page news, but there's only one thing in the world that will matter for eternity. You can be involved on terms of grace. And Paul says, bring your weakness, receive his spirit, and you're ready to promote a kingdom with no end. You see, the revealing of the mystery of grace and salvation is the greatest gift imaginable. God has revealed it in Christ so that his unsearchable, many-sided, Paul calls it manifold wisdom, could be proclaimed to all the world and to every power in it. We are the place where God's purposes are unfolding before the eyes of a watching world. God's grace to us in Christ Jesus is a gift and it is a task. The mysteries of salvation have been revealed. And the mystery that remains is will you receive this gift through faith? Will we take on this task of grace? Join me as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, our world pulls us apart, but you pull us together. We know only division, but you create unity. Our sinful souls desire to order the world from best to worst and greatest to least, but you say all have an equal share in your inheritance if we believe in Jesus. Father, help us to believe and help us to become the church you've called us to be in the world for the sake of all the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.